The leader of uh, the Anglican Church, a man by the name of William Temple, uh, spoke via radio during World War II. And on his radio broadcast, William Temple said this, the world can be saved from political chaos, from collapse by one thing only, and that is, wouldn't you like to know what that one thing is? That one thing, according to Archbishop Temple, was worship. Worship is the one thing that can save the world. It sounds poetic, it sounds inspiring, but frankly, a little bit idealistic. How can what we do here, what we have just done, that is sing a few songs, listen to a, a few scriptures being read, or for on a communion Sunday, go through a religious ritual. I know it's more than that, but how can that, how can that save the world? And if that is the scope of our worship, listening to a few songs and uh, singing a few songs, listening to a, a, a sermon. If that's the scope of our worship, then I think our skepticism about uh, Temple's quote is justified. But you can tell by this introduction, I'm going to suggest that uh, worship is a little bit more than just singing a few songs and listening to a few scriptures being read and then spoken about. Our passage one of the passages that we came, uh, that we read this morning, gives us some great attributes of worship. Things that we should hope for and things that we aspire to be a part of our worship every time we gather. I'd like to read for you, picking up in Luke's gospel, it's a very familiar story, picking up in Luke chapter 2, verse 15. I just want to draw out three simple principles and hopes for our worship. So let me read and then I'll comment. When the angels went away, this is chapter 2, verse 15, went away from the shepherds into heaven, they said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all they had heard and all they had seen. Three principles about worship. Number one, worship feeds the mind with the truth of God. Number two, worship fills the imagination with the reality of God. Third, worship touches the heart with the love of God. Those are three quick principles I want to consider with you. First, we hope that our worship feeds our mind with the truth of God. Let me point us to the example of the shepherds. Follow along with me. The shepherds are told about the verse of birth of Christ. That's in verse 12. I didn't read that for you, but of course they're told by the angels this is going to happen. Then they contemplate uh, the birth of Christ, saying, let us go over there and see this thing. Third, they confirmed the birth of Christ, and they went and they saw the things that just had, had been foretold. And after they had seen, then they returned, glorifying God and praising Him. Their worship was a response to what they saw and what they heard. I know that sounds like a low-hanging fruit, but the carols that we sing, uh, they're not based on someone's overactive imagination. Uh, these carols are not born from sentimentality. Instead, the carols that we sing 
are rooted in actual fact. Certainly the authors take license, uh, but nonetheless, we sing that once in royal David's city, there stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for a bed. Mary was that mother mild. Jesus Christ was her little child, not because it's a pleasant story, not because it's a beautiful sentiment, which of course it is. We sing it because we believe it to be true. The shepherds went and the shepherds saw and what the shepherds saw they spoke about and what was spoken about was recorded so that you and I can join in as well. Worship, Christian worship is not based on our imaginations. Christian worship is not based on our speculations of what we think God may be like and what his character traits may be. No, Christian worship is based upon revelation. What these shepherds saw, they recorded, and what they recorded, what they saw, they spoke of, what they spoke of was recorded. And our worship is a response to revelation. Martin Luther stated that the Bible is the manger wherein Christ is laid. That's an interesting sentiment, isn't it? The Bible is the manger wherein Christ is laid. What he means is in the same way that those shepherds made haste to go to Bethlehem, to peer into that stall, to look into that manger and see what God had done, who God was, the birth of the child. So when we come to worship, we come with haste and open the scriptures, hoping to find the same of what God has revealed. Worship feeds our mind with the truth of God, not our imagination, not our speculation, but God's revelation. That's the first principle about worship. Second principle is that worship fills our imaginations with wonder. Verse 18, all who heard what the shepherds said were filled with what? They were filled with wonder. Now that sounds like, doesn't it? It sounds like they were filled with curiosity, kind of a, huh, what's going on there? The word wonder is really not describing curiosity, instead awe, being overwhelmed. Did you know that the most common response to Jesus Christ in the Gospels is wonder and awe? A little Bible trivia for you. Uh, each of the four short Gospels are, are very brief. You could read them in 30 minutes or less, each one. Yet, the word wonder or awe occurs 32 times in Mark's gospel, 27 in Matthew's gospel, 34 times in Luke's gospel. And wonder is not altogether a pleasant experience. It sounds wonderful, wonderment, but also the synonym awe gives a little bit of a finer point. Awe as in awesome, as in awful. Wonder and awe are the response of when you and I come encounter with something that is beyond us, above us, better than us, bigger than us. We encounter God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ and awe, wonder. That is the response. Wonder, it may not be an altogether pleasant experience, but friends, it's absolutely necessary for our worship. Listen to this anecdote. Several years ago, during the peak of Dr. Henry Ward Beecher's career in Brooklyn, so he's a famous preacher, this is some years ago, two Midwest businessmen were in New York over a weekend. They met for breakfast on a Sunday morning, and they went out to Brooklyn to hear this famous preacher, Dr. Beecher. 
They were both totally awed and deeply moved by his eloquence. That evening they met again for dinner during which one gentleman said, well, I'm going to hear Dr. Beecher again tonight. How about you? The other responded, no, I'll go hear someone else. Each went their separate way. The next morning, as they were eating breakfast, the first man was so enthusiastic about Dr. Beecher's sermon. He said, Beecher was just magnificent. What a pulpiteer, such eloquence. How did you like the man that you went to hear? And in his response, his friend quietly said, I don't remember all that much about the man or even all that much about what he said. All that I know was that there was a profound reality. I met God as if I never, as never before in my life. I came back to my hotel room. I dropped to my knees and prayed, Oh God, forgive me for my sins and make me a Christ-like man. That's what we're after in worship. To be filled with wonder as we encounter a living God. Sometimes we can forget when we come in from the hustle and bustle of a full week. We're running into church and we feel good just to have made it in the pew. I've been there and done that. And sometimes we can forget that we're entering the presence of something, someone who is bigger and brighter and more powerful than we could ever possibly imagine. A quick anecdote from the Glade family. Little Susie is our three-year-old She's beginning to become very familiar with her Bible stories. So if you know your Bible stories, there's one of Moses and the burning bush, right? And it's a story when Moses is commissioned by God to go and let his people go. Uh, they're stuck in Egypt. And so we were having a little family trivia. I, of course, took the role of uh, teacher at the, at the head of the house. And I said, so kids, as uh, little Susie explains, I said, so kid, what did God say to Moses? And uh, everyone responded, as I would have thought and what I was looking for, they, they responded, let my people go. And of course, that's, a, that's one of the rousing statements from Moses, and that's one of the things that God does tell Moses to say. However, that's not the first thing that God says. And uh, little Susie was just adamant, no, 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 that's not what God said. What did God say first? Take off your shoes. Why? Because where you're standing is holy ground. That's a good reminder that when we come into worship, where we're, uh, we're, we're encountering, we're entering a place where God's promises to be in a special way, someone above and beyond and bigger and brighter and holier is present here. Finally, the third thing that we hope for in our worship, our third aspiration, is that worship fills us with wonder. Finally, worship restores our soul with a personal and the intimate love of God. And for that, I turn to the example of Mary. You know that Luke, the gospel writer, is the only one that tells us that he was not an eyewitness. Instead, that he does research, he interviews people who witnessed these things, and then he writes his gospel. We don't know who he witnessed, who he interviews, but it's suggested, speculated, that one of the people that Luke spoke to was none other than Mary. And here's why. 
The reason why the people speculate that Mary was one of his uh, sources was, well, look at the details that are included about the birth. Now think of you, if you're married or if you know, an, uh, if you've ever talked to a man who's visited a new baby, think of the information that you receive. I, I go visit babies in the hospital and Jennifer will say, well, tell me about it. And I'll say, well, it was a human child. <laughs> I believe it was male, but I can't, I'm pretty sparse on the details. And Luke's gospel gives us all these little intimate details that, frankly, I think reveal certainly a woman's touch, if not a mother's touch. Uh, the, his first outfit. I have no idea what, what any of my children's first outfit was, but I bet my wife does. His first visitors, shepherds. Where the baby was laid in a manger. Those things reveal a personal touch, a tender touch. Mary treasured these tender moments, these intimate details. Mary treasured Jesus in her heart. Uh, Jesus was not the subject of a history book. Jesus was not a theological concept. Jesus was a person and someone that Mary treasured. And the same is true for you and me. Now we gather in the presence of a holy God, but we also gather in the presence of a tender God who's available here and wants to place his hand on those areas of hurt in each of our lives so that we, like Mary, may treasure him in our hearts. To fill our minds with the truth of God, to fill our imaginations with wonder as we encounter the reality of God, and to fill our hearts with the love of God as we encounter the tender touch of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we all go through seasons of God feeling distant, of God feeling vague. Perhaps that applies to some of us now. Perhaps we should think of how we approach worship. Do we come expecting to hear the truth of God revealed, to meet the wonder and the glory of God? to experience the tender touch. Again, to conclude where we began, William Temple suggested that the only thing which could save our world from chaos was worship. More than just singing a few songs and listening for a few minutes, he goes on to describe the depth and the breadth of worship when William Temple writes, Worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, feed the mind with the truth of God, purge the imagination with the beauty of God, and open our hearts to the love of God, to devote our wills to the purpose of God. This is the type of worship that we find in our passage this morning that feeds the mind, fills the imagination, and touches the heart. And this is the kind of worship that we should hope for and strive for every time we come into the house of God. Let's not waste our time with anything else. Now, it would be a mistake to speak of worship only in terms of what we do while we're gathered on Sunday morning. However, here on Sunday morning, 
is, or at least should be, a pretty significant place. It should be the place where we experience the fire that warms us, the gas in the tank that encourages us through the rest of the week. As most of you know, Vel Reeves, our director of worship, has resigned and will transition from his position of leadership come the new year. Vel has served faithfully for 10 years, and under his leadership, the musical worship of our church has reflected all of these priorities uh, that I identified in this passage and many, many more. Our worship, musical worship at times, has led us to encounter the greatness of God and filled us with wonder. The musical worship of our church has been deeply personal and moving, leading us to meet with, a, uh, leading us to meet with Jesus Christ. And above all, the worship of our church has been profoundly biblical. Bell has ensured that what we sing, whatever we sing on Sunday morning is reflective of what God has revealed to us. And I know I captured the thoughts of us all when I expressed my gratitude for him and for his family. I invited a few more members of our church to say a few words. <laughs> 